Hello, Redemption's Hill family and friends. Thanks for joining us. Today will be the 16th message in our series over the book of Ephesians. This message, uh, the 16th one, will serve as a little bit of a transition point in this series for us as we move into a text uh, that's generally been called the, the Armor of God text. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 10 through 20. So only 10 verses here, but we're going to camp out in those verses for eight weeks. And it's going to create for us kind of a mini series inside of a series that we're going to call We Are Armed. Some critical thinking needs to happen before we can kind of jump into this so we can digest this part of the book well. We said it before, uh, kind of all throughout the series, that the book of Ephesians is separated neatly into two main categories. The first category found in chapter one through three, the second category found in chapters four through six. And that, that first section, the beginning, opens up into really teaching us about the gift of salvation through Christ's finished work on the cross. Uh, that first section talks about how salvation and redemption are acts of grace and mercy, how they change our identity, and how that change isn't earned and it isn't merited. Basically, the first section of the book lavishes the gifts of Christ upon believers over and over and over. This is the benefit, the blessing of being in Christ. And then after that, the, section, the second section of the book shifts in to kind of begin to speak about, okay, what's next? What comes after grace? Paul's intent on teaching us in the second half of the book what it looks like to live in light of salvation by teaching us how to move forward and how to live in God's kingdom, how to live as his redeemed people. So Paul kind of says in this, hey, you're unaware of the implications of grace when you come into the family, and that's okay. So, so come on in, brothers and sisters, you're welcomed, you're a part of the family, you're saved, you're sealed, you're redeemed, you're safe, you're secure. All of that is true. Come on in. But, but now that you're in here, let me tell you how to walk. Let me tell you how to live. Let me, let me explain it to you. Some have called this separation in Ephesians a separation of, of doctrine on the front side. And, and then duty on the back. Um, and, and that's been kind of helpful for us. At the beginning, you find truth, and at the back end, you kind of figure out, okay, what do I do with that truth? Now, while that kind of two-section system has been helpful to us, uh, maybe a more helpful way to see it as we kind of move towards the end of the book is to begin to separate the book into three parts. Watchman Nee breaks things down and says that the book of Ephesians can actually be broken into three parts that are going to be sit, walk, and stand. Right? Three different sections. That first section, sit, it's the same exact way that the doctrine section is unrolled for us. It's chapters one through three. And the idea in this is to advance in the Christian life, to mature in the Christian life. A believer is first going to have to learn to sit in the finished work of Christ over their lives eternally. We need to sit and stay and become immovable in the position that we have only because of Jesus. You're not doing a bunch. You just sit and take in the reality of what he has done for you. You learn to just rest in and be okay with what Jesus has done. Now, this idea of sitting, it carries an element of, of rest and peace with it. There's a time to rest. 
There's a time to just be in peace. There is a time to really begin to sit in the power of another, sit in the power of Jesus and find strength and confidence, not in you, but in what he has done for you. Right. This is the beauty of the front side of the book. You begin to learn that you didn't come into the family of God by what you've done. It was all a gift and you sit in that and you're not going to be kicked out by what you don't do as well. We can sit confidently that our perfect Savior has, has saved us. We sit in that reality. We rest in that reality. Then after we have learned to sit, then we are, we are compelled to, to begin to walk. Uh, Nee powerfully said, too many Christians have the doctrine of Christianity, but their lives are a contradiction to the doctrine that they proclaim. They profess something that it doesn't actually appear like they they possess. They, They speak about something, but their life doesn't actually model all the things that they're speaking about. And this should not be the case. When we sit in and digest the reality of what Jesus has done for us, we should then begin to walk out that reality of redemption. We should model the change externally uh, that we are proclaiming internally. Because the world isn't just buying the words that we say. They're actually watching what we do as well. So we can't just tell them something that isn't true of our lives. We have to tell them something and then model it as well. This is why Paul says, be careful how you walk. Live lives worthy of the gospel. Because when a person is saved, they're called into a brand new way of life in Jesus. This way of life will show the world the redemption that they have been given. They'll show them what redemption looks like. And it would also help them live inside the kingdom of God. This is found, this walk part is found in Ephesians chapter 4 through chapter 6 through 10. So that's all the way up to where we're at right now. Then Watchman Nee says the third aspect, this armor of God aspect, brings apart a new understanding that where we first sat and then we walked in this armor of God part, we learned to stand. This is what Paul wants to say to us. You may ask, well, okay, um, don't you stand before you walk? Yeah, you definitely do. This stand that Watchman Nee is talking about that's referenced many times in these 10 verses of the armor of God is actually to stand firm. It's not just to stand up, it's to stand firm. It's a position of strength, a position of, of, of resilience where you will not relent and you will not be moved. To be a Christian It's not to fight for a victory because the victory has already been won. Jesus has conquered death. He has conquered sin. He has conquered the grave already. It is completely finished. So we don't have to strive to win something as we live, but we need to stand firm in what has already been won for us by Jesus because Jesus has already defeated all things for us, right? We need to stand firm, be immovable in what he has done. Now, on this side of eternity, even though Jesus has defeated sin, death, and uh, uh, shame for us, on this side of eternity, what we need to understand is those things are true, but we still here have an enemy. One that I'll name out loud, we have the devil still coming against us, seeking to, to kill and destroy us. There's an enemy of God whispering into our ears the same things as he did all the way back in the garden to Adam and Eve trying to hurt us, pull us away from God, make us not trust him, make us not find comfort in God. As the Bible says, there's an enemy trying to steal, kill, and destroy us. 
This is the reality that we cannot ignore no matter how uncomfortable it gets. And this is what Paul is taking on here. It is great that you are sitting in the reality of what Jesus has done. It is great that you're beginning to walk that out. Now you need to stand firm as an enemy comes against you. The way of looking at things, the sit, walk, stand, it's pretty helpful, partially because it's just practical right? Uh, It answers a common sense question for us that probably rolls around in our mind from time to time. The question that could roll around is this, why, if we are in Christ already through faith, do we need to be so worried and preoccupied about living out the identity that has already been gifted to us? Essentially, why is it so important to walk out or live a certain way when we're already saved? If we know God has saved us and he will not cast us out and he will not disown us and we're secure, then why, oh why, do we have to be so hyper vigilant? And there's a way to ask this question, not really in hyper grace, but just to genuinely ask, why do I always have to be on? Why do I always have to be so careful? Why do I always have to be so intentional? Why is making sure that I'm imitating Christ such a big deal? Paul says, well, the reason it's such a big deal is, is because there's an enemy who's coming after you. You have an enemy. You're not doing these things to earn grace. You've already been given grace. You have to walk in a certain way because there's an enemy trying to come against you. You cannot be passive. You cannot be aloof. You cannot be unaware because you are in a war whether you want to be or not. There is a battle raging around you right now. And Paul aims in this section to prepare you and me for how to fight and walk and live in the midst of a spiritual battle. Now, one day this battle will be completely over when King Jesus comes and defeats all things finally. But Paul wants to teach us until that day, how do you walk well? This is what Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20 will show us. So this is the section we'll be in each and every week for the next coming uh, eight weeks. But it starts out this way. Finally, right towards the end of the book. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, there it is, against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes uh, for your feet, uh, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. The text opens up with that one word, finally. 
finally. Paul is saying, okay, friends, we've gone through all the beautiful doctrine. And, and you've heard all the exhortations on how that doctrine should then change how you live. And, and, and you've heard some rebukes that may have been hard to hear. And you've been encouraged. And, and I pray that the encouragement also to be led by the Spirit has been nourishing to your heart and soul. But after all that, I have to come to a closing. And the last thing that I need to tell you is this. I haven't saved it for last because it's least important. I've saved it for last because I need you to walk away remembering it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The word be strong in the original language is actually a passive verb here, meaning it isn't asking you to be strong as if you make yourself strong in God, as if you just kind of will, okay, I'm going to be strong in you, God. That, that, that's not what it's asking. Paul is say, saying to believers in this text, believers, be strengthened in the Lord and his might. Not you be strong, be strengthened in the Lord and his might. It would be dangerous and useless for us to try and muster some sort of inner strength or ability to try and become self-reliant in some way. And that's not what Paul is asking for. He is saying, be strengthened from an outside force. Be strengthened from God, from the, the Lord. Draw strength from someone else. Sam Storm says this, and, and I find it very helpful. The strength of all earthly generals are found in their troops, in their army. But in the Christian life, the strength of the troops is actually found in, in, in the general, in, in another one. So be careful, church. Don't you walk out into battle on your own strength. Walk out in the strength of the Lord. Be strengthened by him. This would indicate a continual need for continual strengthening in the Lord and in the abundance of his might and power. Be strengthened in the Lord and, and understand that he has an unending well of strength for you to tap into and be able to fight with. Don't, don't stand on your own and, and don't walk out on your own. Be strengthened in the Lord. This idea of being strengthened by the Lord, it's not a new theological idea that Paul is just presenting out of the blue here for us. The idea of being strengthened into the Lord is thoroughly biblical, and it's found all over the Bible. You'll find it all over the Old Testament, and you'll most certainly find it all over the New Testament as well. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, we hear exactly this. The text says, Be strong and courageous. But then it ties that strength and courage to the promises and power of God. Be strong and courageous in God. Psalm 18, verse 1. I love thee, O Lord, my strength. But the psalmist isn't saying, I love thee, O Lord, and I'm strong. It's saying, I love thee, O Lord, you are my strength. Psalm 18, 39. Thou hast girded me with strength for battle. The psalmist is saying, you have made me strong for the fight. I, I couldn't do that. Psalm 18, 30, or Psalm 28, verses 7 through 8, the Lord is my strength and my shield. He's my strength. I'm not strong. He is. My heart trusts in him because he is strong, and I've tapped into that strength. Psalm 118, verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. I am saved, and I am strong, and I am at peace because his power is with me. 
Then remember back in Ephesians chapter 1, the beginning of the series, where Paul begins to talk about uh, us remembering the immeasurable greatness of the Lord's power towards those who believe. Well, why would he say that? Well, he says that because the God has all of this power that we can become strong in when we are strengthened in him. This theme is literally all over. Remember Matthew 28, what we consider the the Great Commission, Jesus' last words. He's gathering around about 120 believers. It's after his death and resurrection, right before he ascends back up to the Father. And, And he says this to them. He says, all authority has been given to me. This idea of authority is the power to make uh, choices and state things, but also the power to execute them as well. All power has been given to me, therefore, because all power is given to me, therefore, I want you to go and don't worry, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's telling the church, hey, I have all power, go out and go out in my power. Don't worry, I'm not going to leave you as you do. You'll have my strength through the Holy Spirit as you do. There's a long precedent of the Bible telling believers to be strengthened, not to feel strong in themselves, but to be strengthened in the mighty power of the Lord and watch that power do work. I can't say it clearly enough. This strength you get only by being strengthened in the Lord. This raises the next logical question of how. How do I get strengthened in the Lord. Is there something I actively do? Is there a process? Do I need to pay money? Like, what do I need to do to be strengthened in the Lord? Or is it just kind of like gravity? It's just out there and it's just just kind of happening to you. Paul says you put on the strength of the Lord when you put on the whole armor of God. This is how you find and live in his strength. You put on the whole armor. Sam Storm says again, we were not born or born again with this armor on. Man, if you don't hear much else, will you hear that? It's not automatic. You don't get it immediately. You have to put it on. We have to, each of us personally, for ourselves, your friend, your MC leader, your mom, uh, your, your pastor cannot put your armor on for you. You have to put it on yourself. And once your armor is on, you cannot take it off. Even when you think it's safe, when you think there's no battle around, we keep on our armor, Paul wants us to know. We walk in it. We work in it. We sleep in it. We eat in it. In all times, we have our armor. This means that we don't just talk about armor metaphorically. And it means we don't just describe it ethereally to to other people. Uh, That's not enough. We have to, all of us personally, if we want to be strong in the Lord, we have to actually put on that strength. Paul later in the text breaks down seven steps to show us, okay, what does it actually look like then to do that, right? That's why we're spending uh, eight weeks in this series is we want to spend a week in each and every aspect of that armor so we can understand, okay, what does it mean and what does it look like to actually equip ourselves with the strength that is available for us? So the hope is that we'll have a clear view of what it looks like and that we will be equipped and we will understand and be aware exactly how it's done. And then we'll all just kind of honestly have this choice. Do you want that strength or not. And you're going to kind of have to make that choice. Before we get to each and every individual element, though, of the armor, we need to kind of do a little bit more groundwork to understand a deeper why. Why do we need to do this? A deeper understanding of why putting on the full armor of God should not be seen as optional or maybe not that big of a deal. 
why we should see it as, as an issue of utmost importance. And Paul jumps right into this, into the deep end, by saying what he does in verse 11 in the text. We put on the full armor of God. Those words are important. He says full armor more than once to make us know that we need to kind of pay attention all over the board there. We don't just put one or two on so that we may stand. Stand against the schemes of the enemy, which are the schemes of the devil. You don't just put on one or some or not put on any at all. You put on all of them to stand against the scheming enemy who is trying to hurt you. Now, the subject, I, I get it. The one of evil, the devil, demons, darkness, workers of darkness. It's difficult for us. For a long time, we've associated demons and, and devils with, with mascots and, and costumes and, and tight red pants and a, and a, and a pitchfork. And, and we've used cartoons or, or ways to kind of fictionalize them or, or things like that. And we've done that so much in our modern enlightened era that what we find is we hardly have a framework to think of these things as if they're actually real. We've joked about them and fictionalized and cartooned them so much that we have a hard time going, okay, what are they really, though? You may be able to feel it right now. Even hearing me talk about the devil, that there's a thing inside of some of us right now that, that I would guarantee says, come on, man, don't go there. We know better than that. Like, you can talk about sin and redemption and all of that, but that's just all a matter of personal choice. You don't need to go there, right? Some of us do that because we don't want to talk about it. And other of us, maybe we go another way. It's just awkward for us. We wouldn't necessarily say that we don't believe in the devil, but we sure don't want to talk about it or think about it or plan around it, which is actually a subtle form of unconscious unbelief, which gets lived out practically like full unbelief. We have a hard time talking about the devil. Our culture seems to be custom built to not believe in or ignore the devil, um, which I would argue is probably exactly the way the devil wants things to be. Because if he can get you to pretty much not believe in him or his works, then he will also get you to pretty much not be worried or prepared for him to try and work against you. Right? It's a beautiful and very smart plan because if you think he's not real, you're not worried about what he wants to do. Now, Christians for ages have had a hard time figuring out how to navigate the idea of evil and the devil. While some struggle to believe, others, they go too far. They get like awkwardly enamored and excited about talking about evil and the devil and things like that. And they go so far as to call every bad thing or thing that they don't like around them the devil or, or demons, right? So, so a sniffly nose is demonic oppression and, and, and not a cold. Or, or maybe a bad night's sleep is the devil and not like, hey, dude, you drank Mountain Dew at 1030. That's just kind of what happens. Or, or maybe a, a red light when you're hurry again is the forces of, of evil. And they basically just blame everything that they don't like on the devil, which isn't helpful, healthy, or rational, or coherent. And then it makes others of us who struggle with knowing what to do just go like, I don't want to be like that guy, so I'm just going to reject it all. We struggle with how to be in a healthy position, but Paul is not asking for us to become awkwardly obsessed and terrified about the devil here, but he also isn't allowing for us to be unaware or ignore the devil either. There's some land in the middle that we have to kind of learn how to camp out in. Paul wants us to understand there is an enemy 
who is actively scheming against you. If you're a son or daughter of God, he wants to hurt you, but you don't have to be scared because the Lord has given us a method to be strengthened through his might to fight off that enemy. He's given us a way to stand firm, to not be moved, to not retreat, right? You don't have to be scared. There's a real enemy with real schemes who's really coming after you, but there's real power you have available. If you tap into that, you got nothing to be worried about. Here's the other uh, undertone though. There is a real enemy. If you don't tap into that strength, you're primed to have a problem. Right? We need to understand, how, how do we balance that? There's real strength to fight off an enemy. But if we ignore that strength, how well prepared will we be? If you'll notice the phrase stand is huge to Paul in this section of scripture, he repeats it four times. Right, to make sure that we don't miss it or get confused. Uh, the, the what, he, he, here's, the, here's the understanding that you need to kind of zoom in for. The what of this entire section is this. What does he want? For us to stand firm against the enemy of the Lord. The how, how do we do that? By putting on the full armor of God so that we can receive and stand in the Lord's strength. Why? Why would we do that? Because there is an enemy trying to hurt you. Right? We've got to understand the what, the how, and the why. Standing firm is, is really specific way of saying, okay, I do not want you to get knocked back or get knocked down. Right? If you're unaware and the enemy comes after you, you're going you're, you're gonna to be hurt really quickly. He's going, no, I don't want you to be knocked back and I don't want you to be knocked down. If you love old war movies like I do, have you ever seen, have you ever seen a scene where, where guys are banded together and they're, and they're holding shields and there's somebody yelling like, hold the line and the enemy's coming after them and he's trying to break through the line and if they do, they're going to they're, they're gonna be able to hurt them and they're standing strong and they will not let them through. This is what Paul is asking for. Do not Give up an inch. The enemy's coming for you, but Jesus has won the victory. Do not give up an inch. He's empowered you to stand strong, to stand firm. Be immovable, not in yourself. That's not going to go well. Be immovable in the strength of the Lord. The first step of being able to stand is being aware that there's a fight in the first place. You will not be able to stand strong by being oblivious. Right? We have to understand that there really is a fight, and we also have to understand who we're fighting against. Friends, I'm worried that many of us are clueless that there's a spiritual battle around us. Right? That we're looking at all the things in the world that, that kind of claim our attention to the fact that we're not even paying attention to the other things going on. Paul says, there's a battle. Let me show you who it's against. That's why he says what he does in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When we look around the world, what do we see? All over the place, what do we see? We see fights. We see battles. We see anger outrage, violence, animosity, or struggle, bitterness, rage, right? We see it everywhere. We see flesh wrestling against flesh. We see flesh and blood coming against each other, where one person squares off against another, where two people, both made in the image of God, rage against each other and scrap against each other. And Paul in the text says, church, wake up. That shouldn't be our primary goal. 
Paul isn't trying to say here that there's never a time for fighting. And he's also not denying the reality that there is fighting. He's saying, though, we have to realize that there are bigger things at play. If we're always too busy fighting or arguing or squaring off against other people, we will be so distracted that we cannot see that there's a greater danger, the danger of a real enemy scheming to hurt us. That there's a battle against darkness and evil and spiritual forces, no matter how uncomfortable that makes us. There is a real battle out there. See, our call as believers isn't primarily to push people around. It's to push back darkness. But we will never push back darkness if we're too busy raging against other people. Right? Think about the Shema in the Old Testament, which Jesus referenced when somebody came up and was like, Jesus, what must I do to be a Christian and, uh, or a follower of Christ? Or he actually says, what must I do to get to heaven? And, and he begins to give him the Shema, which is to love God with all of your being, with your mind and your soul and your body and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to be redeemed in the kingdom of God? You love God with everything? And you love your neighbor the same way you love yourself. We have to understand if we are too busy, caught up fighting flesh and blood, we'll never love our neighbor as ourself. See, before Christ, our identity may have been to kind of freely fight whoever we want to. But now that we are in Christ, we lay down our weapons to fight other people and pick up our weapons to push back and fight evil. Again, to clarify, Paul is not advocating pacifism at all costs here. He isn't saying never push against another human being or, or, or never have tension with another human being, but he is saying make sure that it isn't your driving force and the thing that kind of captures you. This is also probably a way of Paul to kind of clarify us some of the schemes of the devil. Remember, he says, because the enemy is scheming against you, one of the primary schemes, one of the favorite schemes of the devil is to try and trick us to fight against each other. To make us not love each other, but get bitter and angry towards each other, especially in the church. Have you ever found yourself stewing over some sort of situation with another church family member? No? Just, just thinking about it? And have you ever found yourself just kind of sitting in this growing frustration towards them? And then maybe the small thing turns into a really big thing where frustration begins to blossom into a harvest of bitterness. And then bitterness turns out into flat out anger or even worse, biblically indifference. Do you think that process where something small that you stew on it becomes something really big? Do you think that that process is on accident and unguided? Do you think it's just random that a small word turns into rage? It's not. The enemy loves to make us turn on each other whenever he can. He loves to get us to begin to believe the worst about another. To believe that a brother or sister is, is not the same child of God. To believe that they're, 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 they're not the, the, the same follower of Jesus as you and their, and their worth is not the same as yours. The enemy loves to do that. Because when we believe the worst about another brother or sister... We will never work with them for the cause of Christ. We'll always just stand against them. We'll pit ourselves against them. We'll always kind of jockey for position mentally or maybe even physically against them. 
Why do you think Paul says don't take communion when you harbor anger in your heart? Don't go to the table. Don't, don't take the, 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 the body and the blood of Jesus where you hold anger in your heart. Why do you think he says that? Well, when we receive grace, thank you, God, that you would forgive me even when I don't deserve it. And then you're thinking towards somebody else, but I'm not going to forget them because they don't deserve it. Well, it makes a mockery of Jesus and grace. But it also gives a foothold in your heart for the enemy to cause you to hate someone. That's why Paul says it's such a big deal and the enemy loves it so much that you even pause communion to go reconcile with someone. Right? And we got to think of that. In the middle of church or a gathering or whatever, you're about to go to the table and you remember something against someone else and you go, no, there's nothing more important right now than, than, than for me with the armor and strength of God to go reconcile with another person so the enemy will not have a foothold here. And then you go as reconciled people to take. The enemy loves to turn the church against each other. Sadly enough, we've proved that we love to turn against each other. Verse 13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand uh, in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Paul wraps up the intro by recapping the theme for us. Because there's an enemy scheming, and because the days are evil, actively protect yourself at all times by putting on the full armor of God so that you may stand against the enemy in the strength of the Lord. Through the strength of the Lord that you may stand firm, immovable. I want to make sure to say the schemes of the devil are not only to get us to fight each other. That would be way oversimplifying it. Some of the other ways, and we really can't get into an exhaustive list just because I don't have time now. MCs would be maybe a good place to talk about some of this. Some of the other go-tos of the enemy to scheme against us is through temptation and accusation. So we have to be self-aware enough to realize that we are not perfect and we are susceptible to fall flat on our face if the right temptation comes. Right? There are temptations for each of us that are problems. And maybe the temptation for you isn't the temptation for another person, but temptation is real and dangerous. And because of that, Paul wants us to know that we cannot stand against temptation alone and in our strength alone. Over time, our resolve and our well of strength will surely give out. So because of that, armor up and be strengthened by the Lord. If you're prone today to think that the enemy just doesn't tempt you anymore, that you know he kind of gave up after your salvation, uh, can I tell you or remind you that the devil, the enemy, tempted Jesus three times in his earthly ministry? If the enemy would be uh, audacious enough to tempt Jesus three times, why in the world do you think he would not tempt the weaker you? Right? You seem like low-hanging fruit compared to Jesus, and so do I. So we need to be mindful of that. And, and instead of just standing in our own strength, we need to be strengthened in the Lord so that when temptation comes, we may stand strong and immovable, something we will not do on our own long term. The devil also loves to accuse us, to whisper into our ear things that are not true. Right? His classics, God is disappointed in you. God doesn't care about you because of this way that you messed up. God doesn't actually love you. 
God doesn't uh, care and he's not even looking out for you anymore. And that's proved by this thing that's happening in your life right now. He loves to accuse you. He loves to tell you that that sin that you did is too big for God's grace. And then when wave after wave after wave of accusation comes, it is only the armor of God that will help us stand strong and say, that is not true. Right? I, have the, I have the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith to defend that off. And I understand what is true and that is not true. I am loved. I am cared for. I am sealed. You'll never be able to stand against the accusations of the enemy on your own. You will crumble in shame and defeat. And so will I. That list is by no means exhaustive. Again, there are so many other ways that the animal loves to scheme against us. We didn't even dive into things like oppression or demonic opposition. Have you ever had some time where just the, the worst thought just pops in your mind? You're like, what was that? Yeah, that, that's a scheme of the enemy. And it's only with the armor of God that you can stand against those types of things. What we have to understand is there is a war going around us and we're actually in it. And we cannot run into or battle in this war naked and exposed. You cannot fight without armor. You weren't meant to. I would imagine that this um, text as we listen to it together, that we're probably all over the map. Right? On the way that we view the topic of spiritual warfare, and that's okay. But my hope for today is that really the same hope that Paul has for us, that we would be aware. That we would not be terrified in a way that causes us to panic, but with eyes wide open, we would see the reality of an enemy who is scheming, but also the reality of the grace of the strength of the Lord that's available to us to fight against that scheming enemy. The great news is that even though spiritual warfare can be really unnerving when you think about it, our Savior is not scared, right? He has already defeated death, sin, and the grave, so we don't have to worry if our side has enough strength to win the battle. It does. Jesus does. Jesus most certainly has the strength to win the battle, and we need to be armored up so that we can stand in that strength. See, when we put on, here are the elements, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and prayer, we begin to have this armor to fight against the enemy. The question for all of us will be, though, will you put it on? And I can't put it on for you. Pastor Dennis can't. Your MC leader can't. Your spouse can't. Will you put it on? You have means available to you to fight well and be strong and stand firm in Jesus. Will you put it on? This putting on of the armor isn't about earning your salvation again. We've already been saved, but make no mistake, it does protect you from being busted up and wounded when the enemy comes against you. It strengthens you so that you're not just a passenger getting beat up in your faith, but you're strengthened in the Lord so you stand firm as a warrior through your faith, men and women both. Ask yourself today, do you intentionally seek out the strength of God? There's a great way to start the beginning of this series. It's that, do you intentionally seek out the Lord's strength? Or do you kind of just go, no, I, I just got this. There's nothing big coming after me. 
If it's the former, you say, man, I'm trying and I'm learning to seek out the strength of the Lord, then yes and amen. That's a beautiful thing. Keep going, brothers and sisters. Speak to other people about that. Teach them that. And if the latter is true, that you're going, no, I just kind of think I've got this, humbly would you see that you need God for more than just salvation. Afterwards as well, you need to seek out and rest in the strength of the Lord. Don't worry if the details still of this are confusing. We're going to spend seven more weeks specifically showing you what are ways to be strengthened in the Lord. And it will most certainly clear up how we stand firm. My hope is that we will be saved and strengthened and stand firm, that we will understand more clearly through this what it looks like to stand in the beautiful strength of a Savior who's not just saved us or redeemed us, loved us, and adopted us, but is fully equipping us for the battle that we're in right now. Church, that's our hope. We're gonna dive further into this. I hope this is helpful for you and even through your MCs that you'll be able to have some good dialogues about what this looks like and that we will all grow in this. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you have not just saved us and left us, that you've not just left us here to, to be uh, open up, to be hurt, but that you have given us your strength and means even now to stand strong in you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you help us see the need for that. Spirit, for those of us who are busted up and tired and hurting, I pray that you would let us see in a fresh way that the strength of the Lord is available that we don't have to stand alone, that we don't have to fight alone, that there is a beautiful strength that you have put with us that is available. May we all of Redemption Hill learn to stand strong in the armor and strength of the Lord. We pray for that. God, if there's anyone hearing who's far from you, I pray that they would receive your mercy and grace as well. We pray that in your name, God. Amen. Church, I hope that you're doing well. Uh, I hope that this series is helpful, that you will learn to armor and equip yourself through it, and that you'll be stronger in your faith because of it. I can't wait to see you again. Uh, there'll be a worship guide after this. I would urge you to spend some time in that or prayer afterwards, and I can't wait to see you. I love you guys.